Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Let's pray together. God, thank you that in Christ our sins have been atoned for. The price of death has been paid. Victory has been secured through the resurrection. King Jesus, you are seated with all authority at the right hand of the Father. And you've poured out your spirit upon your people, your church, that we might live for you, that we might exclaim the excellencies of Christ Jesus. And God, it all comes back to the truth that we just sang. Jesus in my place. We had a debt that we couldn't even begin to pay and you came down and paid it for us. Lord, that, uh, that compels us to praise. It compels us to want to know you. And you've revealed yourself to us in your word. So, God, we pray that uh, in the next 30 or so minutes to come, you would help us to glean everything you would want us to learn from your word. God, I pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. Spirit of God, I pray that you would move as we are reminded of just some basic fundamental truths of the gospel. And that if anyone doesn't know you, God, today, let it be the day of salvation we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That song, Jesus Paid It All, there's a line that says that he can change the leper's spots. When I was a child, we sang that hymn, and before I could read, I heard the congregation singing that God could change the leper's spots, and I thought it was the leopard's spots. Um, God could do that too, right, if he so wanted, um, but it's the leper's spots, and the leper is a, it's an illustration of our sinfulness, right? It's that leprosy is contagious, and it spreads over the body, and in the Old Testament, those who had leprosy were considered unclean, and only uh, God could, could cleanse them, and you know, it's a, it's a metaphor for our sin. Just one sin is toxic. Just one sin separates us from a, a good and holy God. How is it that a good God could consign someone to eternity in hell? He's that good. He's that righteous. He's that pure. He's that perfect. But he's made a way back into his presence through Jesus. And this is the message of the gospel. It's the message of grace. So as we have been studying in the book of Acts, the gospel's been going now not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. And we saw that at the end of Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas make their way back to the church at Antioch of Syria, the church that had sent them out, and now we turn the page to Acts chapter 15, and the message that I want to share with you today is called this, Grace Contradicted and Defended. At some point, 
Some people wake up and they're like, a bunch of Gentiles are coming into the people of God. What's up with that? And suddenly, people aren't too happy about it. We're going to consider that from God's Word, beginning in Acts 15, chapter 1. Would you turn with me there? Acts 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear with me the Word of the Lord. We'll go down through verse 5 to start. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The first point I want to share with you this morning is pretty simple, but it's one we should not forget, and it's this. Until King Jesus comes back, there will be people challenging the message of a gracious salvation. Until King Jesus returns, people are going to challenge the fundamental reality that God saves. And it's a gift. Holy and entirely and completely an undeserved, unmerited gift of God. In these verses, we discover some deeply misguided Christians who leave Judea, they leave Jerusalem, and come to Antioch to question the salvation of Gentiles who have not been circumcised. And by doing this, they are putting the very message of salvation at risk because salvation comes not through the circumcision, not through the removal of any flesh on any poor person's body, but entirely by God's grace. And grace, listen closely, grace rightly defined is an undeserved and unearnable gift secured and provided at the initiative and the expense of the giver. That's, that's a lot of words. You've probably heard it all your life. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's, that's true, but I, I want to tease that out a little bit more. It is an undeserved and unearnable gift secured and provided at the initiative and the expense of the giver. Y'all know at Christmas time, office parties, sometimes, well, I got a gift because they're going to get me a gift, and because they got me a gift, I got to get them a gift. There's nothing that you could give to God to make Him give you this gift or to to deserve the gift in return. Y'all have families like this, or oh, what's she going to get me, so i got to get something in return. That's, that's not grace. This is lavish, total, out of nowhere, God shows up and gives me a filthy, wretched, undeserving sinner something that I could never earn or invent or imagine or deserve. Communion with God himself, that is grace. But these men from Judea, 
meaning they're ethnic Jews, they, they come down to Antioch to, in their minds, set things straight. Yeah, Jesus is great, but he's not great enough. In their view, one must first become, if they are a male, circumcised. In verse 5, once Paul and Barnabas get back to Jerusalem, we learn the issue isn't just circumcision, but it's what circumcision represented, right? Keeping the laws of Moses, all the ceremonial laws, uh, the laws about clothing and about what you eat, the laws of cleanliness and uncleanliness. These people, they say, these Gentiles, if they're really going to be saved, it's great that they believe in Jesus, but Jesus is insufficient. They must also keep the law. So Jesus didn't do everything for salvation. He's just kind of the capstone of salvation. So you've got to become a Jew to come to Jesus so then you can be saved. And you know what that is? That's a bunch of hooey. It's a technical theological term. But by this point in the story, thousands of Gentiles have been saved without keeping the Mosaic law. Thousands of Gentiles have been saved without being circumcised. Husbands and fathers in, throughout Turkey on Paul and Barnabas' first mission trip, they've come to saving faith in Christ and there has been no physical act of circumcision, but they are saved. And this was difficult for many Jews to accept. And we should be forgiving of them, right? I mean, their entire identity before Jesus was rooted in keeping the law. It was who they were. So, so some Jews from Judea come to Antioch. Now remember, Antioch is like the first multicultural church in world history. There's people from all over the world in Syrian Antioch. There's Jews there. There's Gentiles there. You want to talk about a multi-ethnic church, this is a multi-ethnic church church. It's also a metropolitan church. It's a city church. These are city folks with lots of diversity and lots of different foods and lots of different backgrounds and perspectives. And how do they all get together? Because of what Jesus did. Jesus put them together. They send Paul and Barnabas out on a mission trip to take the gospel to Gentiles. And these people from Judea come down to this amazing church. I mean, if there were conferences about how to do church and who's doing church well and where is God really working, you would send people to the church of Antioch of Syria. You'd be like, let's go find out what they're doing at Antioch and maybe God would take that and that could happen at our church too. Are y'all with me? And they go down to that church and they don't say, man, what is God doing here? I want to be a part of what God is doing here. Let's see what God is up to. They don't say that. They say, unless you are circumcised. According to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Absolutely chilling. You can't do it. You cannot be saved. Jesus is not enough. You, you must earn your salvation. In, in a moment, church, salvation by grace is denied. In a moment, human works are added to the gospel, and the gospel is no longer the gospel because the good news of God doing for us through Jesus everything necessary for salvation is stripped away in a moment. They misunderstand the law. The law was never intended to save us from our sins. Why did God give the law? It was designed to show us our sin. 
It was designed to show us our inability to get to God and our great need for a God who would come down and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Paul in Romans 3.20 says it like this, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. What does the law do? It lets us know that we are sinners, but it cannot take away our sin. So in this moment, the very message at the heart of the church's mission is at stake. Take away salvation by grace, and what does the church have? We have nothing. We just have another version of earning your way to God. Like every other world religion, I can do enough, I can save myself, I can strive and I can get there. That's all we have. But Christianity is unlike every other world religion because every other world religion says there's something that I can do to get to God. But Christianity says God has done in Christ everything I need to do to get to God. It's not what I can do, it's what God has done. Jesus plus church attendance is not a gracious salvation. When you get to heaven, you're like, man, I I went to church every Sunday. That's not going to be enough. Jesus plus baptism is not a gracious salvation. Jesus plus I never struggle with anything in this life. I'm just a model citizen. I'm perfect. I checked all the boxes on my offering envelope. I always did all the stuff I was supposed to do. Jesus plus your good works is not a gracious salvation. You say, well, pastor, I I shouldn't be baptized. Of course you should be baptized because Jesus says that's the symbol of the inward transformation by grace. But baptism doesn't save you. Getting wet doesn't save you. Taking communion doesn't save you. Being here every Sunday doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. A gracious salvation is this. No matter where you've been, what you've done, or who you've been, or who you've been with, Jesus plus your nothing to offer is everything you need. I, y- y'all, I need to say that again. Jesus plus your nothing to offer is everything you need. What can I bring? How good is he? All I have is a sinful heart. All I have is dirt. All I have is filth. All I have is guilt. All I have is pain. All I have is the inability to break the chains of this addiction. Bring it to Jesus. Be saved by grace. Some of you are still trying to be good enough to be acceptable for Jesus. I got great news for you this morning. It will never happen. But God is gracious. He sent His Son to die in your place that He might accept you. Grace is this, just as you are right where you are, a heart that turns from self to the Savior in faith will be saved because Jesus is enough. And whatever this truth, wherever and whenever this truth is challenged, what do we have to do? When people come to the church and they deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what do we do? We stand up. It's time to fight. There's a lot of things that aren't worth fighting about, but when people deny the message that's at the core of the identity of the church, we got to go to battle. Let's keep reading. Verse 6 down through verse 18. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe, and if you write in your Bible, underline verse 11, circle verse 11, it's a, it's a key verse. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Better translated, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they are. Verse 12, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, and Simeon there means Peter. To take for them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord. Who makes these things known from of old. You say pastor that's a lot. It is. But I want you to get one thing. We must defend, as the people of God, a gracious salvation. Point one, it's going to be challenged. Until Jesus comes back, people will want to worm their way into the church and say, Jesus isn't enough. It's Jesus plus something else. And point two, when that happens, wherever it happens, we must defend the message of salvation by grace. Before the church sends Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to settle this issue, we saw them back in the, the prior text that we read, back in verse 2, we saw them immediately defending a gracious gospel in Antioch, right? Because when, when the message of salvation by grace alone is, is under attack, we can't back down. So we see back in verse 2 that they have no small dissension and debate. In other words, there was a big dissension and debate. That's, that's what... Luke is trying to let us know. There's, this is not, uh, this is not a, a spot of tea at the tea room conversation, you know, with your lady friend talking about the weather or the news. There's a little spat going on. They're a little set tea. They're a little upset. The, the word debate means that they countered their arguments biblically and theologically. I suspect that Paul said much of what he wrote in the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. I suspect he said things like this from Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. All, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, righteousness doesn't come through the law. The law told us to look for the righteousness that God would send. And then he says this, the righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Sorry, that was uh, actually from Romans chapter 3. 
I got my notes confused there. So first, Galatians 3, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And secondly, from Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And he goes on to say that all are justified, how? By his grace as a gift, not through the law, but through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's a debate. There's a theological debate that happens in Antioch. And there's no small dissension. Verse 2, what does that mean? It means they were emotionally vested in the discussion. If the message of grace is upended, the message through which God rescues his people is distorted and the church is thereby destroyed. So the church in Antioch sends Paul and Barnabas out on another mission trip. Right? They've already been on a mission trip to spread the gospel of salvation, but now they're sent on a different kind of mission trip, right? They're not there to proclaim the gospel to the lost. They're there to defend the gospel among the saints. Because if you lose the gospel, you don't have anything to take with you on the mission trip. You can dig wells. You can be nice to people, right? You can build huts. You can do all sorts of things. But if you lose the gospel, you don't have any reason to go. So we're going back to Jerusalem to make sure that we preserve the message that is the foundation of why we go. We're going because there's a gracious salvation available. And as they go, they describe in detail, verse 3, the conversion of the Gentiles. And what do we see? This brings joy to Christians. They're, they're rejoicing as they make their way back to Jerusalem. People are excited. And once they get there, they go to the church leaders. They go to the apostles and the elders. And they share the exact same information of how God has already saved a whole bunch of Gentiles. And then in verses 6 and 7, the apostles and the elders, they debate these two positions themselves. Why why do they debate this? Because it's the only choice. Salvation is either by grace or it isn't. There is no third way. A lot of times we live in a society that wants to compromise on everything. Why can't Republicans and Democrats just compromise? Why can't so-and-so and so-and-so just compromise? And we live in this society that's like compromise is always the, always the best way. Compromise is the way of Satan when it comes to a gospel of grace. You can't blend grace with works. If you've been saved by grace, you will want to work for God, but none of those works will you see as saving you. They are just an offering back to my King who has saved me by grace. So there's a debate. Salvation is either by grace or it is not. And they present the arguments for each side. The side of truth, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the side of error, salvation by Jesus plus keeping the Mosaic law. And then Peter rises to speak. Are we surprised that Peter's the one who stands up to speak? I mean, it's always Peter. And here's his argument. Come on, guys. Really? Like, do you not remember Cornelius? It, it was not, do you not remember me? It was not my idea for salvation to go to the Gentiles. That was the last thing I wanted to see happen. That was the last thing on my radar. God had to smack me over the head with a frying pan and give me a vision of pork in a sheet. Like, what, what in the world, people? 
I mean, this is his argument. It, it, it wasn't Peter's idea to go to Cornelius. What does he say? God chose me to speak the gospel to the Gentiles, verse 7. Why? So that they would hear the gospel and believe. Not so that they would keep the law of Moses. So that they would hear the gospel and they would believe the gospel. Peterson says it this way, God demonstrated his will by deliberately choosing that the Gentiles would hear the gospel and believe through Peter's preaching and be saved. Church, when the gospel is spoken faithfully, when it is heard openly, and when it is believed sincerely, there is salvation. Nothing else. When it is proclaimed faithfully, heard openly, and believed sincerely, there's a new follower of Jesus. They are brought from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, like that, through the transformation that Jesus makes. When Peter mentions the early days, verse 7, what is he talking about the early days? He's talking about the beginning of the church. It's been 10 years since he shared the gospel with Cornelius. Now, if you're reading along, it may not seem that long, but it's been almost a decade since Cornelius got the gospel. So here's what Peter is saying. God's been saving Gentiles for a decade. Where have y'all been? Like this is old news that God wants to bring Gentiles into the kingdom. But you know what, church? One of Satan's strategies to sideline the people of God is to make salvation not about Jesus, but about what we can do or what traditions we like and then use that stuff to divide us. It's, it's, it's an old, tired strategy. Satan wants you talking about what your preferences are and what you can do and what you used to do on such and such committee or what you used to do out in this neighborhood. He wants you focused on yourself and your traditions and what you can do and not on Jesus. It's right here. So what does Peter do? He continues his defense of a gracious salvation in verse 8. He just keeps hammering the point. After he says, look, God chose me, then he offers this. By the way, he also gave the same Holy Spirit to Gentiles as a witness to their faith that he gave to the Jews as a witness to their faith. If the Gentiles were lacking something for salvation, how would he have given them the Holy Spirit? How would they have received the presence of God on the inside if their salvation was incomplete? That doesn't make a bit of sense. Verse 8, furthermore, God is the knower of hearts. You see that? God is the one who gives his spirit to all whose hearts are what? Verse 9, cleansed how? Not by works of the law, but through faith and Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, Jew and Gentile have the same problem. What's our problem? It's not a mosaic problem, it's a heart problem. We got dirty, wicked, wretched, sinful hearts and it is a problem that only the God of the universe can cure and because we have all the same problem God offers us the exact same solution same problem same solution whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile the solution is Jesus verse 9 he makes no distinction between Jew or Gentile in verse 10 Peter's getting a little upset. He's working himself up. He's like, God chose it. He chose me. God gave them the Holy Spirit. He cleansed their hearts by faith, just like he cleansed your hearts by faith. And in verse 10, he's a little upset. And he says, so why are you putting God to the test? That is not a question you want to hear. 
This is a rhetorical question. He's not asking them to answer it. What he's saying is, you're putting God to the test. It's like when my kids were smaller and I had asked them to clean their room and then I came back two hours later and their room wasn't clean and I said, why isn't your room clean? I'm not asking for an explanation. What does that mean? Clean your room. And they're saying, or Peter's saying, you are putting God to the test. This is language that Jews would have been very familiar with. They put God to the test in the wilderness. And he wants them to know that arguing that Gentiles have to keep the law in order to come to Jesus means that they're saying that Jesus is an insufficient Savior. It's like when the Israelites wanted to go back to slavery and they were testing God's patience in the wilderness and inviting His judgment. He's like, do you really think that Jesus isn't enough? And aren't you glad that Jesus is enough? On my worst day, Jesus is enough. In my darkest moment... Jesus is enough. When I've had the same thought pattern that displeases God for the millionth time that I take to Him in brokenness all over again, Jesus is enough. Indeed, He's more than enough. And I praise God that Jesus is sufficient because when did the Israelites keep the law anyway? Like you're arguing for Gentiles to keep something that you could never keep. Which is what he goes on to say, right? He says in verse 10, It's a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Aren't you glad that Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 that his burden is easy and his yoke is light? That he came to take the law that He came to fulfill the law, that He came to be the righteousness of God in our place so that would rest easy on us and He would connect us with Him and He would guide us in righteousness and truth, that He is our yoke and it is easy and light rather than this law that the Israelites couldn't keep themselves. No one is saved by law-keeping. But, praise God for verse 11, how are we saved then? We believe that we are saved Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they are. No distinction. Jew and Gentile. Salvation comes to everyone on the same basis. Through the grace of Jesus. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We are all totally and utterly and equally dependent upon who? Jesus. Jew and Gentile equally need Jesus. Male and female. Rich and poor. Religious and wretched. They all need Jesus. The gap between us and God is infinite. And Jesus alone can bridge it. And I've got good news. He will for all who will turn from their sin and self-worship and trust in Him. In verse 12, a hush comes over the entire church. You ever been in a room or an argument when somebody makes a point and it's like, wow, yeah, that's it. That's right. That's that's what Peter did. It was like a mic drop. The debating of verse 7 
has abated. God's answer is winning the day. When the people of God seek answers from God, God will answer. And His answer will end the debate and settle the hearts of His people. Paul and Barnabas then share about how God had granted signs and wonders as they shared the gospel with the Gentiles. Why did they do that? Because God had given signs and wonders when the gospel showed up for the Jews. So what's he saying? God is authenticating the same message and the people in the same way. He's saying that Jews are being brought into God's kingdom through the hearing of the gospel and Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom through the hearing of the gospel. And then James begins to speak in verse 13. James is an elder of the Jerusalem church. He's not James the Apostle because, as you recall, James the Apostle has been beheaded. But what we see is the church is transitioning from leadership of the apostles to leadership of the elders. And James the Elder rises, or James the Elder speaks, and what does he do? He reminds us of an important lesson. We have to filter everything we're arguing for, thinking, and believing. We have to filter all of those experiences and questions and thoughts, how? Through the Bible. We need a biblical resolution to the argument. And in this story, we see more than just a crisis resolved biblically. We see the leaders of the church, the the non-apostolic leaders rising up. Peter is mentioned for the last time in the book of Acts. The apostles will be mentioned for the last time in chapter 16. The apostolic teaching of Christ according to the scriptures is going to be solidified in the New Testament writings and elders from Acts 15 until Jesus returns are to be leading their local churches biblically and faithfully. How? How do leaders lead the church? They open the book and they take whatever question is before them and they say, what does this book say about what we ought to do? Everything. How should we budget in this present context? What does God's word say? What programs should we start in light of our community and what God's heart for the peoples is? What would God's word lead us to conclude? Everything we do needs to be biblically shaped and informed. James concludes in this context and in this argument that we shouldn't be surprised that God has visited the Gentiles. What does it mean when God visits somebody? It means the gospel, the good news has gotten to them. They have heard about King Jesus who left heaven, lived a life in our place, died a death in our place, was raised on the third day, ascended at the right hand of the Father. God is visiting not just Jews but Gentiles. Why? To take a people for His name. What does it mean to exist for the name of God? It means that you're marked by Him. That your identity is no longer slave to Satan, but adopted by Christ, friend of God. You are marked by His name, and you are joyfully living for and under His authority. And I love what he says in verse 15. He says, with this, it's emphatic in the text, it's at the very front of the sentence. What is the this? With the salvation of the Gentiles. With the gospel going to the Gentiles and people who had no knowledge of Moses being saved. With this, the prophets agree. In other words, the Old Testament told us to expect this. 
If we were reading our Old Testament properly, we would know that God was going to rescue people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Going back to the promise of Abraham, what did he say? In your seed, through your son, there are going to be people all over the planet who are going to be blessed, who are going to be saved. So James has in mind this thread throughout the Old Testament, that God is going to bring in the nations. God is going to bring in the nations. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation. It's not just going to be Jews. It's going to be all kinds of people who are surrendered to King Jesus, who comes through the Jews, who enter into God's kingdom. And in verse 16 and 17, he quotes from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, to make his point. And in that text, God promises to do two things that are very interesting after Israel's exile from the temple of God's presence is remedied through the coming of Jesus. So you're, you're scattered, you're distant, you can't get to the temple of God, you're out there among the nations, but I'm going to send a king who's going to remedy that, God says in Amos chapter 9. And he promises first to restore David's fallen tent and rebuild its ruins. Why? So that secondly... A Gentile remnant will seek the Lord. Don't miss what James is saying right here. James says that's happening right now. James shows and Luke records as inspired scripture that God's promise to rebuild the temple is fulfilled through Jesus. And that Jews should expect the Lord to be bringing in all the Gentiles who are called by his name. And he says, look, God's doing it right now. God tore the veil. When Christ was raised, when Christ was crucified, the veil was turned, torn on the third day he was raised. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father, giving unfettered access into the presence of God right now. In other words, Jesus was not joking when he said that he would destroy the temple in three days and ra- destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. Jesus fulfilled the law. He did all that was necessary to take our stony hearts and turn them into hearts that actually, genuinely know and commune with God. We are the temple of God. And the implications of this are massive, church. The way into God's presence. The way to fulfill your purpose in life. The way to know and enjoy God forever. For anyone, Jew and Gentile alike, how do we know him? Through Jesus and Jesus alone. It's what the Old Testament promises. And James says that God is doing it. He's making it happen right now. And these things that God is doing and making happen, verse 17, have been known from of old. In other words, God's ancient plan to glorify His Son by saving sinners from among all the nations is happening right now. And it's all by grace. The undeserved, unearnable, unmerited gift of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As we close, I want to ask our instrumentalists if they would, and musicians, if they would come on and make their way to the platform. Friends, it's only Jesus. There's no other way. 
There's no other way to be right with God. There's no other way to commune with God. There's no other way to know the joy of being adopted and rescued by this great God. And as a pastor, I've done a few funerals. And I often ask, tell me about their relationship with God. Friends, I've heard a lot of responses. Well, he got baptized when he was a kid. He was a pretty generous guy. He always had candy in his pocket for the kids. Well, I know he tried to be a good person. Church, if the, if the breath that you just took was the last breath that you would ever take in this life, I've got to ask you, would you be with Jesus? And if you stood before God, your maker, in this moment, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven, what would your answer be? And I beg of you, if the answer is, I tried hard, I tried my best, I tried to be good, I got baptized, I took the Lord's Supper, I was at church every Sunday, I, I taught a Sunday school class, I was a deacon. Church, none of those responses is going to be able to stand in the day of judgment. None of them. The only answer that will stand before God, your maker, is I don't deserve to be here. I deserve your wrath and your judgment for I am a wretched sinner, but that guy paid my price. That guy died in my place. I trust in him wholly and he completely, and I can't understand it, but because of Jesus, I am thoughtless to stand before the throne. I've staked my life on Jesus. If your answer is anything other than I belong to Jesus, we're going to stand and sing a song in Christ alone. I beg of you, repent of your sin, run to Christ, and be saved. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.